Welcome to the Exponential Podcast. My name is Peyton Jones, and as Exponential's content director, I'll be your guide through the curation of the world's largest multiplication library of resources and training. We currently have four shows running Monday through Thursday, each with a different thrust towards accelerating multiplication. On Monday, join us for front lines tackling current issues facing pastors and planners. On Tuesday, tune in for Biblically Speaking, Theological Foundations for Transformative Race Conversations. On Wednesdays, Ralph Moorhead's Practical Multiplication, A Pastor's Guide to Accelerating Multiplication. And lastly, Candid Conversations is on Thursday, Unpacking Definitions of Diversity. Be sure to catch them all as they will serve as equipping companions on your discipleship journey towards multiplication. Today, join me and Daniel Yang on Frontlines. The Frontline program seeks to encourage and equip pastors and planners to better understand and navigate the current and future trends in church ministry. Each episode invites thought leaders and advanced practitioners in ministry to inform and inspire pastors and planners as they continue what they do on the field. Exponential, it's Peyton Jones. Welcome to our webinar. This is Frontline. Sometimes I forget all these different shows that we got going on. I got to remember which one we're on, but we are on the coolest one today. It is called Frontlines. And uh, I definitely have uh, the coolest uh, bald host, uh, you know, other than myself on here. I feel that's a criteria to be a host on the show is to have a little bit of a chin beard and, and nothing up top. Oh, you know, I didn't even think about that. That's pretty cool, actually. So we and can add Francis Chan. I mean, who else can we add to this? Tim Keller would rock one of those, but he doesn't have one. He needs a I think chin he needs beard. one. He, he does. Growing out though. Yeah. He does. <laughs> if we get him hanging out with Ed Stetzer, your boss, a little bit more, it might you rub know, off. And Ed might start bicking I know it, why so. Ed has a full head of hair, but I'm not going to go into that because <laughs> I could lose my job. But <laughs> That's true. I know. I always want to get you talking about your boss because I, I, I want to hear you come back on you and say. You got me in trouble. You got me in trouble when we were doing that episode. with. Yes, you. I did. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Yes, I want to hear that you got called into the principal's office as a result of the show. Well, hey, speaking of uh, someone who should get called into the principal's office and probably did a bunch, we've got on our show today, Brian Sanders. Um, man, it is so cool to have you on here. That's actually the, when you, you were just talking about that story where we first met. <laughs> we, talked about getting in, we talked about getting in trouble, didn't we? We talked about like our delinquency, our juvenile delinquency era. Hey, it, it was it was natural. Yeah, I'm just saying it was natural. You got to find you got to find common ground with people. You have to find common ground with people. There's so much insider speak happening right now, but we Sorry. just we can't even unpack it. <laughs> yeah, we can unpack it, but we could. I mean, I I have expected it, but let's just say that Brian and I, when we met each other, pretty quickly knew we were probably going to be friends. And uh, <laughs> you know, I am I am absolutely fascinated watching you, Brian. For those of you that that don't know, Brian is uh, not only the author of Underground, but he's also, uh, he's got a book called Microchurch with Exponential, but he also is uh, the founder of a, of a network in Tampa Bay called The Underground. And, you know, I, Brian, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're the kind of guy where you don't care about being famous. You don't care about, you know, get everything about you is kind of to me the thing that i feel like church planners and people that want to influence um not necessarily have a big name or impact but they really want to influence the body of christ um 
they should be paying attention to what you're saying. And that's why we got you on here. And you're not saying a lot. You're kind of in uh, Ireland right now. You've kind of like put the brakes on. Uh, tell us a little bit about this season in your life for people want to catch up. You'd, what are you doing in Ireland? How long you been there? And what's God talking to me about? Yeah. <clears throat> well, thanks for saying that, Peyton. It's kind. Um, yeah, probably in Ireland, uh, maybe 50% of it is uh, to do with founder syndrome. You know, you know when, you, when you start an organization, but you're really interested in seeing young leaders emerge and take control. Um, like that's, a, that's a, just a, a fundamental, uh, you know, goal of mine but you realize you're kind of part of the problem or you cast a shadow or your ghosts haunt the meetings and so on. Uh, you, you just have to think, man, how do I get scarce here? How do you, how do I still support and believe in the movement I'm a part of? Hmm. So wanting to give our sort of young executive team real, uh, creative license to make changes and do new things. I just figured I probably just needed to get out of town for a little while. Wow. Um, and because we have this sort of growing network globally and we had loads of people in Europe sort of saying, can you help us? And our answer was, no, well, we don't know how to help you. We don't, we're not there. You know, I thought, well, maybe I could spend a couple of years here, um, serve people. And so that, that's the other part is just getting back to maybe my missionary roots. You know, I'm willing to be an executive. I'm willing to do, you know, make budgets and raise money and, do HR and handle crises, but it was, if I'm honest, Peyton, it was, it was, it was taking a toll on me. You know, if all you, if all you do is sort of manage the difficult things, the complexity, um, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's like not something that God's grace can sustain, but there was definitely, there's definitely a missionary part of me that just wants to start things and be in the front of something and be in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And something really beautiful was happening here in Dublin right at the time. So sort of been two years ago. And I just thought maybe, maybe I could come and be a part of that too. Um, and also serve people around Europe. So that's what we've been doing two years. Um, and probably that, that season's coming to an end now, but it's just been a beautiful thing and really good for my, for our team, you know, in the U S to, to really take charge and, make decisions and so on. So that's why I'm here. Hmm. Hey, Brian, we want, we want to get into the origin story of uh, Tampa underground and, um, uh, and some of the things that you've seen and learned, but man, I've heard you talk about this over and over again, where um, you want to create environments where failure is acceptable. Um, and so something that we try to do with most of our guests that come on is try to get like the inside secrets. Like what are the things that shape you? Uh, sometimes it's experiences. We've talked about comical moments where we've had, you know, we bombed preaching a sermon, uh, those kinds of things. But give us some inside secret to you, man. What, what's one of the ministry flops that you've experienced that has shaped you profoundly? <laughs> oh, man. Well, you know, we, we talked about this, but I mean, it, it's all it's all a matter of perspective, you see. So if mm -hmm. if, uh, if, it's, if it's not a failure, if it's not a flop, if you learn from it, and I, I do think we have we have tried a lot of harebrained ideas, and but I, I would actually see that as as a virtue, you know, uh, in the system. But I did, I did. If you're talking about preaching, I did, I did almost get in a fist fight in while preaching at a at a campus. Okay, you definitely got to talk about that. <laughs> well, this guy just kept heckling me. 
Uh, it's only a ministry failure if you lost the fight. That's that's well, I, it, it, it felt like a failure. I mean, when it was over, I was pretty pretty embarrassed. But kind of hard to preach after that one, huh? Yeah, it's there goes your there goes your credibility, you know, as a Christian. But yeah, I mean, he was just heckling me, and then he said something about my wife. Wow. And so oh, I just wow. said, I just said, hey man, how about we just step outside? This is in the middle of speaking. So I was like, let's go outside. Bro, you were, all, you were ready to throw down in the middle. No, no, of I was side. like, okay. I was like, it's on, dude. So Brian so, Sanders beast mode. I love it. <laughs> that was very embarrassing now, but it was embarrassing <laughs> then. It was, it was just bad all around. But I was just like, I don't know. I just thought, mm, I'll just step down. We'll go outside. We'll handle it. And then wow. all these students came and tried to talk to him and they were, they were trying to, I mean, I, I was, they weren't restraining me or something like that, but I was just sort of like, listen, if this is what we need to do, then let's go. Pretty, it's pretty embarrassing. I don't, I really don't tell that story with pride. You're saying something that's, you know, shaped me. That's probably like, I don't know, uh, archetypal sin for me. Um, Hey, hey, man, look, there was a, a in Wales, because I know you're in England and I was in Wales for 12 years. There were these guys that um, they started this thing called the Ford Movement, which is where Martin Lee Jones ended up. But the, one of the guys was a prize fighter before he came to Christ. So he used to literally throw down. He would go, all right, I'm going to preach. You go into a rough area of coal miners. You say, I'm, I will fight all of you for the right to preach to you. If you beat me, I walk away. But if I win or none of you will fight me, you got to sit here and listen to me preach a gospel. And that's how he started a movement. That's a, that's pretty unique contextual situation. That's probably not going to work in other places. <laughs> and I know you're a reader. Brian Sanders reads like 400 books a year. I'm not even exaggerating. Uh, you can, you can track it on Facebook, but there is a really good book called grace, grit and gumption about mm. those guys. If you mm. get a chance to, to check it out. But um, I, I would say my greatest failure uh, in ministry was naked Sundays, never took on. And um, no, for real though, uh, the, the one that never, never took was, um, so uh, because I always want to kind of like go more apostolic, I once tried starting a church in a, in a truck stop uh, in Wales and uh, the, it, it didn't get off, the, it didn't even start because we had this uh, lady on our leadership team who was like, Peyton, she was total shepherdess. She's like, what about the children? I'm like, I got that figured out. Ball pit at the Burger King at the truck stop. Just throw them in there. We're good. And uh, I have, unfortunately, I have too many of these type of ideas where the apostolic in me was kicked into such high gear. Uh, in downtown Long Beach, we were going to rent a, a garage on a street corner. And I was going to put the kids in the pit in the bay, you know, where they work on the cars on it. I, I have too many, unfortunately. So, yeah. so your failures have a lot to do with child protection issues. I can oh, <laughs> yeah, pretty much, okay, pretty yeah. much. And and in my defense, I was left unsupervised, and I did not have children at that time. I have since uh, learned to take care of people's kids. <laughs> Daniel, what about you, man? That's why my failure is not taking care of my own kids in the midst of, fail, uh, of ministry. <laughs> Oh, I didn't so, know we were going there. Yeah, I just got I just got real and deep. But well, no, my kids are in great shape. Uh, you know, they're they're normal kids. But if I, I have to think back, I probably uh, have had more times where my wife was right about the direction of our ministry, and I did my own thing anyways, and eventually came back and 
and repented and listened to both the Holy Spirit and my wife. So uh, there's too many uh, of those, but one of those being we uh, tried planning a church in Detroit and what was essentially the um, the gay community there. And I, man, I, we had a venue, we had a team, everything going, and it just wasn't the right time yet. And the Holy Spirit stopped us in our tracks. But it's like what you said, Brian. I mean, it, at the time, I thought it was a failure. Um, but the Lord intervened, and it wasn't. It became a catalytic moment in my life. So, I do, I do think it's possible to, you know, at that at that mysterious moment of judgment to hear God say, "Poorly done, good and faithful servant." You know, like the, <laughs> it's the, it's the second part. It's the characterization that's key. You know, like have we tried? You know, and even if yeah. ah, if you if you get the return, that's more to Him anyway. You know. Yeah. That's what I love about you, Brian. You have, first off, uh, both Brian and I, Daniel, want to change our answers to what you said. Um, <laughs> but, but number two, what I love about Brian is I've been at an event with Brian um, where, the, I don't know if you remember this in Long Beach, Brian, uh, we're an event. I, I won't say what it was, but I love, like, Brian has a high profit kicking in him. So when, uh, when he'll be there, he wants to cut through the red tape. So I remember we're, we're at this event and Brian's like, what are we really doing here though? Like, I just, I just want to know, like, what does Jesus think of it? And that is such a prophetic bone, man. So I love that. Kicking, well, when you, when you have Brian and Hugh Halter in a room together. <laughs> <laughs> you can't get Hugh Halter in the room. The problem is he just leaves the room. That's the problem. That's true. I, That's I at true. least stay and talk to people. He just like, where did Hugo? He just disappears. But, you know, I mean, last year we did something together and I put you two in a room and I, I just felt like canceling my meeting. It just <laughs> in a good way. But yeah. Well, hey, man, tell tell us a history of, um, you know, oh, well, first off, I, I know we talked about Ireland and, and why you're there, but um, you've got another kind of prophetic journey. Like you run the underground. It's a network of micro churches. If you don't know what a micro church is, um, hold on. Brian will eventually break it down. But um, tell us a little bit about how the underground started, because that also started with another journey overseas. Yeah, I mean, the, the underground probably started as a protest. That would be a fair way to say it, you know disgruntled or something uh but that that can't last long actually that fire burns out quick it's hot but it burns out quick it should um and at some point you just realize you're you're an adult if you think something isn't right just do it differently you know uh, there's plenty of empowerment in the scriptures you know follow jesus where you think don't don't just sit around and complain no one's listening anyway actually nobody cares you know so so at some point we woke up to that probably my mid-30s early 30s whatever and we just thought man we need to go we wanted to think about can we can we just come up with a new form like an alternative form so we're actually talking like deep structural ecclesiology not just these are our ideas or even models but kind of a value-driven thing. And we thought the best way to do that was maybe to leave the U.S. And so there was about 50 of us at the time um, just trying to look for something else, just trying to think, is there another way? Surely there is, you know. Um, youthful, you know, not, not, I wouldn't say overly, you know, not overly hubris-driven, but but yearning, hopeful. And so we ended up in the Philippines. We, with about nine of us, our core leadership 
went for almost a year and just lived in the slums and tried to learn, which is sort of like deprogram or I guess today you might say decolonize actually our theology um, and, and kind of come under and submit to, um, you know, Filipino church planners and, and leaders and just ask them to kind of reorient us. So that was a pretty profound personal, theological, emotional, communal experience for us. And the underground was really born. So the core documents, the manifesto, a lot of our process stuff was born there in the slums of the Philippines. Those same 50 people flew out at the end, the last two weeks, we had sort of a little conference. We just sort of sought the Lord together and said, should we do this? And and I would say that the, the core kind of um, technology was was the microchurch. Now, microchurch isn't new, right? But it was it was this dual operating system, which was like to have a kind of conventional hierarchical um, structure that served the organic decentralized network of microchurches. So the microchurch is the church. The underground network is the kind of nonprofit 51c3 the agency which serves the church that allows the the organic decentralized networked empowered version smaller bits to to kind of be free while also being served i don't know things like you know insurance and uh contracts and just kind of the 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 nuts and bolts of of needing to do ministry to take that off the plate of those um, microchurches. So that was our innovation. Um, and it's a good idea. It's worked. It was really just an experiment. So it started as a protest, but it became an experiment. Then it was like, we weren't mad anymore. We're just like, will this work? So we, we ran with it for about 10 years. That's when I wrote the book Underground Church. It's not like it's a finished product. And it's and frankly, it, I, I often say it's a lot like Netscape Navigator. If you remember Netscape Navigator in 1998 or whenever that came out, it doesn't even exist anymore, Netscape. Nobody uses it, but it was it was a way to come on the internet and, and it, it opened doors and now we have Edge and Chrome and better versions and I'm sure people will do this better. But, but it was important. You know, it's a, a starting point, you could say. So that's the kind of, I guess, condensed version of our history. Brian, are are you are you? I mean, there's so much narrative, so much relationship involved with the um, the starting of the underground in Tampa. Uh, does it when you, when you see other folks who are starting to do the uh, microchurch uh, network, uh, the infrastructure that you all have, is there a concern that there there may be like a cut and paste? Uh, you know, because I think a lot of folks have seen what you're doing that's innovative and, and we need to unpack it a little bit more, but there's a tendency to say, well, let's copy the form and the structure, but it sounds like there's a lot of relationship and a lot of like self journeying before you even got to form and structure. Uh, can you unpack that a little bit more? What was it that you were, what was the angst behind why underground network became what it was? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not even sure you can, you know, it's like, and, I, and, and frankly, I just don't know if models, like adopting models, I think that the days of doing that are pretty much over. Um, like I saw a piece of research recently, um, which looked at 219 companies. It was a longitudinal study, so it was over seven years and, and something like 29 industries or something like that. And they were looking at, they were looking at CEOs 
and what they call time orientation. So like, um, do you, or do you, do you kind of focus your leadership on the past, the present or the future? And what they found is really fascinating, really important actually, because what they found was that the leaders, the CEOs, and they were looking at innovation. They were trying to see like how well were they able to produce new products and so on. And they, they realized that in times, so this is important in times of stability, stability, the leaders that had a focus on the past and the present were outperforming everybody. Those companies were outperforming. But in times of like dynamic instability or change, it was the companies whose leaders were focused on the future and the present who outperformed people in the past. And that makes sense if you think about it. Like when things work, when there's long kind of periods of stability, like, I don't know, the industrial revolution or something like that, the enlightenment, you can look back and you can, you can talk about something like Taylorism or Fred, you know, Frederick Taylor or uh, scientific management. You can say something like, what are the best practices? You know, how do we incrementally just continue to improve this process, you know, of church planting or whatever it is, fill in the blank of the industry. But that doesn't work in times of dynamic change. It doesn't work. In fact, you'll lose every time you'll, you'll fail in the market because you're trying to find out what worked yesterday or a year ago or 10 years ago and it's that the the the, the dynamic dynamics have totally changed the games have totally changed the players have totally changed the market has totally changed you've totally changed so because we live in this like incredibly fast adaptive time i th i think we've moved into a place where if you don't have a future orientation you're not gonna succeed so looking back i mean even two years ago even even the underground as an example it might be obsolete. It might be becoming obsolete even now. So the issue is not so much like, can we take this model and redo it? But it's more a matter of like learning how to learn or learning how to adapt or learning how to create a model. I think now that's important. You know, I think of somebody like Roger Martin's stuff, like the design of business, um, you know, his whole knowledge funnel thing, which is like, you know, innovation goes mystery you start with a mystery. What is the big problem, the wicked problem? Then, you, then you, you work on it and you come into some heuristics like rules of thumb. And then you get to an algorithm. It's like a repeatable process that produces results, right? Every single time, the same results. Americans love algorithms. We want to buy somebody else's algorithm, right? So mm -hmm. I worked through it. I, I figured out what big, the big problem was. We, then we figured out some heuristics of how to do it. And then we worked out this codified process of how, to, how it could be done. And now I want to go sell that. But the problem is in rapid change, that codified process is no longer useful. Well, it's less useful or it's becoming obsolete right as you buy it, right? And I also think there's a whole issue of discipleship. So you're asking the question from, from our point of view, the underground. I just think everybody has to go through that. I think that's where you meet Jesus. I think that's how churches are planted. Mm -hmm. I think that's how new things come into existence. I think that's that's where beauty happens. It's like, what is the, you've got to wrestle with the mystery. You've got to, you've got to figure what is our wicked problem, this impossible thing that can't be done. And then you work on it and you pray and you're desperate and you strategize and you try and you fail and you try and you fail and you iterate. And then you get some rules of thumb and then you come up with an algorithm, but it's yours, you know? So uh, to me, that's the, that's, what's transferable today is that sort of process of learning. And if anything, I think people can learn from our story. It's that you are not as trapped as you think you are actually.
that that you 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 know these this this institutionalization is as much mental or cognitive as it is physical. It may be more mental. We just think we can't make changes. Uh, and I I read something recently where someone was saying um, what we fear is not really change, but it's loss. And that struck a chord with me because so much of what I know about the American psyche is loss aversion. It's just really we're just scared of losing things, you know. It's not really that we're not good at change. And the church, I think, historically, I mean, if you pull back 50 years, don't, don't just look at the last 20 years in your church, but actually look at the church as a, from a macro point of view. We're incredibly good at change. I mean, we may be the most adaptive thing the world has ever seen, actually. Culturally, temporally. I mean, we, we just, the church becomes whatever it needs to become in every, in every generation, in every place that it's ever been put. It's this living thing. It's actually quite, kind of amazing. So for us that are facing those kinds of changes and considering models or whatever, the issue is really about fear of loss. You know, can you let go actually of things that you don't really need to hold on to anymore? That, that's really good. And, you know, p- part of what you know, I think I value about your approach is you've never, you know, a lot of what you guys have come to was born out of pain. And I think a lot of, excuse me, born out of pain. And I think a lot of um, ministry that does end up being innovative comes out of pain. It, you know, we, many of us that, you know, like, like even what Daniel was saying earlier about, Hey, I did this thing and it came out of, you know, it was a painful time. It, it, but it wasn't a failure per se, because through that was born something else that God was doing in the leader. And, you know, I think a lot of people, when they're adapting models, they're trying to avoid that ministerial pain that is so fruitful. I I hate to say it, you know, unless that grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, man, (laughs) like your, your ego, your, you know, your ambitions. I mean, there, there has to be a death of a lot of things before there's life. And I think people want to circumvent that. But, you know, you mentioned um, things that, um, you know, uh, can you, can you let this die? Can you lay this aside? Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, a lot of times when you're talking about micro church, um, You'll define it, which, you know, uh, we've got questions coming in already. Hit us with your questions. People are already, people that already know what a microchurch is are starting to hit us. But um, what is a microchurch and what does minimal ecclesiology have to do with it? Yeah, I, I think it's not so much an issue of small, although they can be small. Uh, they, they certainly can start small. It's, I like the word micron, it's that Greek word, um, which actually Jesus uses when he talks about little children or what, what gets rendered little children, you know, um, don't, don't hinder these little ones, don't harm these little ones, just sort of protection of the scandalization of the small. Uh, I think it's a more principled thing than just children. Um, so I really like that, the idea of like small expressions of the church, um, so I don't, you know, that can really be anything for anybody. Everybody has their minimal ecclesiology. In business terms, you call it your minimum viable product. Like if you stripped it down and all you had was these, these last elements, 
you'd have to say, well, that is actually a church. That's still a church. You know, like, do you need a building to be the church? No, you can have a church that meets under a tree, right? Somewhere. We know that. So in that sense, you can strip away buildings. It's not to say you don't want a building or buildings aren't good. There's no value judgments being made there. It's just, you didn't need a building to be the church. So it might be nine things for you. It might be four, it might be six. For us, it's three, worship, community, and mission. And when those three things are overlapping in a group of people, you're looking at the church. That's, that's, that's my position, but yours may be different. But the, but the bottom line is that everybody has a minimum ecclesiology. Everybody has a, a sort of, you know, root elements, uh, irreducible minimum that you'd say, okay, I guess that is actually the church. So the point is, I think what's valuable in that discussion is that actually there are things that can run around as the church masquerading as a church that aren't the church. They don't actually have all those characteristics, but they have a sign. You know, and they have a budget and they have a te- uh, like an elder board or something like that. And guys, we, we just have to do better ecclesiology than that. Say, what is the minimum? And then there's some things out there that aren't being called church, you know, that maybe should and could be empowered. And then the subsequent question I think that that, that leads us to is, then, okay, well, who would lead them? You know, because if you have a lot, if, if it's smaller than we thought, like if a church is, is something that, is, that can be smaller than we thought, as a missiologist, that's very exciting because you start thinking, man, the smaller the thing is, the, the more more mobile it is, the more flexible it is, the more contextual it is, the more people can lead it, the more places it can go, um, the faster it can change. So, of course, there's there's challenges to having more and smaller and not having professional clergy and stuff like that. But it's, pr- it's a pretty exciting prospect to think. So then, then it's like, okay, whatever your answer is to that question, the, the irreducible minimum. Um, well, then what do we do if, if all of a sudden we're going to see a lot of those things planted? We have to figure out how to network them. We have to figure out how, what, what is the new kind of glue that would hold those things together because the old terms, denominational sort of structures and institutional structures don't quite work. You know what I mean? Account, accountable systems, hierarchies, orthodoxy, training, all those, you know, finances. It, it, just doesn't, it doesn't overlap anymore. So, so we have to innovate in that too. Brian, uh, can you describe, um, and there's so many good questions, but I want to build up to these questions that are coming in, because there's a great question about, uh, are these, you know, an approach to anti-fragile uh, models of church, but um, give it a, an idea of uh, a microchurch at the Tampa Underground um, I know there's probably different ways in which they're formed, uh, and they're probably composed of different kinds of leaders. But give us an example of like how one gets formed, and what do the people who are part of the microchurch, what's life look like? What's their rhythms, and and what's the authority leadership structures look like? So it probably wouldn't be that different from some of the the language of, of a missional community. You know, it's defined first by its sense of mission, its sense of being sent somewhere, a group of people sent somewhere. Um, <clears throat> so it could be something as simple as a house church, which is which is sent to a neighborhood or a block or something like that. I think we all have a, you know, in our, a mental model in our mind of what that could be. Um, but I think I think maybe part of what 
uh, I would want to add to that discussion is not just that it's missional communities, that's something cellular, that just is another way of sort of like replicating the same thing over and over again, or even house church movements, which are in a sense confining to homes and to, to living rooms and so on. Uh, I think the concept of microchurch includes those things, but it could also be a laundromat. You know, you, you go to the same laundromat every day. And so we've seen microchurch that's in laundromats. You know, like that's, it's a church for people doing their laundry or anybody that uses the same laundromat. That's a group of people uh, from pubs to cafes to, to sports teams, to strip clubs, to, you know, demographs, like groups of people, young, you know, middle school, black girls or uh, single mothers or uh, people who've experienced sexual trauma. Uh, these are niche groups of people that have unique stories, unique needs, uh, and a sense of maybe corporate identity. Uh, and so they become, again, as a missiologist, you just think, well, this is, this is how the church should be planted actually in the 21st century is not in parishes or big sort of mass groups of people that have nothing in common. That's not, that's not how human beings interact with each other anymore. There are these incredibly specific niche markets, right? Uh, I don't know, people who skateboard and like Megadeth and they're, and, and are into my little pony. Like that's a group of people that, that exist. That sounds that like overlap. a step. Sounds like a church might, uh, Peyton, Peyton might, might lead. He might go to that. He's a, he's a brony. I'm not a brony uh, <laughs> at all, but no joke. One of the guys um, is that, that was at my church in Long Beach was like a national brony figure and was, a, and was just leading people in that movement to Christ. Like exactly. literally, I didn't even know what it was. The first time he said the word brony, I was like, what in the heck is that? But no joke, that's a thing. And I get excited about that because I think that's a microchurch. That's that's more than one microchurch. I met a guy. I was just in in Bristol, England. And I met a guy who's like a, a like a world renowned professional handstand guy. I, I don't know what you call it, handstander. I knew my teachers are wrong. I he's like told stand, them. He's, he's a professional <laughs> handstander. I don't know. He teaches people how to do it. It's this whole kind of group of people that I, I don't. I really. I've, obviously, it's clear. I don't understand it, but this guy can stand on his hands for a long period of time. And it's a group of people kind of like carnies or something. And I'm like, this is an incredible opportunity for you to bring the gospel to a group of people that know who is going to penetrate that market, except for who is going to penetrate that demographic, except for you. I mean, suddenly the apostolic possibilities are extraordinary, but also the sense of like the, the revival of the priesthood of all believers, this guy, I'm having a conversation with him. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to him like, do you know another believer in this, in this group of people? He's like, no. I'm like, okay, so you know, you know what God's calling you to do. And it's, it's incredible. The, the gravitas that he suddenly feels because he realizes God has sent me to these people. You know, I'm not just one of many. I'm, I'm the only one, you know, it's, it's a beautiful, incredible thing. It's something I think Daniel Pink talks about the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. I think a lot of the way that we've moved people into ministry or into mission, maybe in the, in the last 30 years is, is an extrinsic motivation. You know, we've created this sort of like externalized, come to this thing or experience this together or whatever. And we need to find a way to recapture intrinsic motivation. 
which is like, wh- what, is, what are you going to wake up every day thinking about? So if I have a kid with, with let's say it's on the autism spectrum, or I have a child with a certain disability, let's say, every day I wake up thinking about that, every day. And I know people who have, who have kids in the same situation, and I know every day they wake up thinking, I don't have to tell them every 28 days what the vision is. To, to reach those people or love those people or remember God cares about those people. You know, you don't have to do that if you have an intrinsic motivation, which is like, this is in me. And I wake up every day and I go to sleep every night with a heart for these people. We've got to find a way to bring church planting uh, back into intrinsic motivation, get it out of extrinsic motivation. Um, actually, if anything, the way, if, if we have, if we do church planting that's built around platforms, we're building in, bad intrinsic motivations, you know, because it's so externalized. The intrinsic motivation is I want to be famous or I want to be loved or I want to be, you know, I want the adulation and that's a bad intrinsic motivation. So getting people back to mission and and a sense of calling and zeal that comes from inside them. I also think it's part of this innovation. It's, it's actually the genius of the church. It's how we don't need to pay people to do ministry. We don't because that there, because when you have that intrinsic motivation, that deep sense of calling, you'll wake up and you'll do it because it's who you are because you're compelled. Christ's love compels you. I, I want to speak into that for a second because I had a really unique experience last week on this. I'm in between church plants and you know, but of course I'll plan again. I'm sure. Um, I don't accept that that's just default. That'd be a weird thing, but I kind of know my wiring and, um, but you know, the other night I was called into a, uh, how do I put it? You know, when people say, Hey, we have a haunted house, will you come and pray and help us get rid of it in our house? So I went over, you know, um, not the first time. And, uh, this family, you know, they, they, they don't know the Lord. And, um, at the end of it, you know, I'm talking to them and Andrew and I are driving home. And we're just like, you know, we, we gave them opportunity to, you know, follow Jesus, what have you. But at the end of it, I was just like, Andrew, that's how, that's how I want to start things out. I don't even want to start a church. I just want to do a Bible study in their house now from now on. And because that's what they're asking for. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, to me, coming away, just divorcing it from all that structure, letting it just be highly apostolic. A church will happen out of it, no doubt, but it will be like, like what you're talking about, that minimal ecclesiology, believers gathering together, it's going to be all of their people that they will invite who will come. And I'm not trying to build anything. That's always as a church planner for me, been the most annoying thing about church planning is church planning got corrupted like everything else. There's a church planning movement out there that's wrecked it. Kind of like that book, Marketers Wreck Everything. And there was just something Paul did. And I've been on a quest for decades, man, just trying to get back to that. And the other night was the closest thing I felt to that other than when we were starting churches and Starbucks or whatever, not trying to, I've never tried to start a church by the way. So, you know, that's your eye of the tiger. That's your eye of the tiger, Peyton. You got to go back to the beginning. (laughs) That's it. Eye of the tiger. I pay the fool. I don't understand that pop culture reference. (laughs) Hey, hey, Brian, let me, let me come back to something. And Peyton's touching up on that a little bit too. Um, Underground presents like one model of a network of micro churches. Um, For those who are leading uh, traditional models of church, 
that might be reverse engineering or even doing the Google X thing on the side, what are some other possible infrastructures that could support microchurch networks that you're seeing? Because I know you consult with some uh, exi- you know, um, traditional churches. And then secondly, and maybe this is a, a, a precursor question to, to that question, but do you see a difference between microchurch and then what some have called missional communities? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately, we just, what we do is we just end up conflating all the terms, you know, we we sort of, we aren't sure what we mean and people just start using terms, which is fine. You know, it's not, there's no registered trademark on any of these ideas, but uh, I think, I think what's, what's kind of maybe the, the big return on the idea of microchurches is that you're you're recapturing mission as a central piece of it. So definitely missional communities do that. Um, but you're also allowing it to be the church. And I think that's a pretty important shift for us because then we start saying, well, man, are you just kind of saying anyone can lead a church? Exactly. So I think that's a, that's a change or a shift that – can traditional churches do that? Can they find a way to navigate that without just calling these things small small groups or, you know, kind of tributaries or subsidiaries or franchises of their own main mothership or whatever, which isn't what we mean. We don't mean tributaries of one main thing. We truly, we're truly talking about a network of autonomous microchurches. And then the centralized expression is, is defined by serving those things so anything that does that or can do that i think is in the same spirit so can a traditional church pivot to do that of course 100 percent um we you know you i think we're seeing varying degrees of success in trying to do that i think it's i think it's harder than we realize or harder than you might think uh, but not as hard as some. So some might think, well, that's just impossible. There's no way. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far, you know. I think, I think just kind of the podcast version of that would be you're going to have to liberate three things. You have to liberate your mind. So there has to be a new way of thinking about what the church is, and you've got to help your people do get there. Uh, you've got to liberate your money because actually the economic model is going to trip you up every single time. It's what in medicine is called graft versus host disease. You know, when you put a new organ, an organ from somebody else into your other body, sometimes they don't take, right? And then the, actually the, the body attacks the donated organ, you know, which is meant to keep you alive, you know. Uh, that happens, and that will happen if you don't liberate your money. I would, and there's other systems that are important, but I, w- I would use that as a primary example. Um, and it's not actually as hard as we think. So we, we could talk about that if we want. Like I, I could give you a couple tips on how to do that. I think you could really do it. Yeah. Take a little bit of courage, but you could actually do it to actually break out of the dependency on a Sunday morning economic model. And if you can break out of that dependency, I mean, you really then it's just a leadership challenge. You know, and the third thing would be your model. So your your mind, your money, and your model. Then try your models. The problem is we want to start with a model. So we want to inject a model before we've actually done the theology, had the heart conversion, really actually led our people through a process of rethinking. That's not going to work. S- same thing. You try to jump ahead, insert a model 
without dealing with the economic realities, it's not going to work. And you're realizing you can't do it just on the side. So could you fund, like if you have a lot of money, you could fund it on a side as a skunk works. You could do that. But if you actually want to change the system completely, and most people don't have that much money to be able to just say, oh, well, you know, here's $500,000 over here. We're just going to go for it, do a three-year project uh, on a side, skunk works, whatever, brick, Yahoo brick house or something. Most people probably can't run both or they don't have the leadership capacity either to do that. But so if you want to go centered, then you'd have to figure out, I think, to liberate those three things. Then you apply a new model. Give it a shot. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's really good, Brian. You know, I, I appreciate, you know, that you're um, you're kind of helping people to understand that, you know, you don't you're not going to bait and switch. It's not to suck people into the bigger machine. Um, and somebody asked a question along those lines. I guess they want to see it more at a micro level. They asked if you could elaborate how, say for you threw out two examples, a strip club and dry cleaner micro churches overlap worshiping community. Well, that's the beauty of it, right? So uh, you, once you feel called to a group of people, you have to figure out a way to <laughs> not just reach them, but provide for them meaningful expressions of community and worship. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we early in 2007, we planted uh, one of the first microchurches was a, was a microchurch to women coming out of prostitution, sex industry, whatever. And they would do club outreaches. So they built relationships with these strip club owners and the managers would let them come in while the women were working, go back in the dressing rooms, offer them gifts, pray for them. You know, just give them like nice, I don't know, cosmetics or flowers or, you know, just bless them, you know, and they like that. But they would often wait for them. So you're talking about three, four in the morning or something when a shift is over, they wait for them, say, if you want to, we'll go to breakfast and we'll talk about life. And you're talking about leading someone to Jesus, but then finding a way, then what? So exactly, what does the church look like then? Well, it sure doesn't look like a sanctuary somewhere or a bunch of worship services or Sunday school. It looks like housing. It looks like addiction recovery. It looks like, um, you know, emergency services. You know what I mean? It, it, it looks very different. So then they start building a church. This is what I'm saying. They're building a church that has emergency housing, that has communal homes where the women can come and live, that, that build a staff that have totally different jobs than pastor, youth pastor, kids, church director, bookkeeper, administrator, right? You're, you're hiring a totally different staff, right? But it's not fundamentally different. You're still hiring people, raising money to be a church, but it's just a church to this certain group of people, this demographic and what they need. So it's responding and feeling the freedom. See, that's, that's what the nonprofit parachurch sector can teach us as church leaders and church planners. The, the parachurch has been doing this for years. They figure out what their mission is, and then they think, well, what do we have to do to love and reach and provide worship and community for these people? And they figure it out, and they don't feel constrained. They, they find a way to do it. So, you know, whether that looks like actually having Bible studies in the laundromat or having Bible studies in a home that's near the laundromat. It's, it's, that's not, that's not the key. It's not figuring out how exactly to do that thing, but it's saying, okay, who are these people? Where do they come from? What do they need? Knowing them, loving them, responding to them. The creativity of the church is unbounded. 
And the possibility of what the church can be when it's networked together in this way is indomitable. I mean, it's a super organism. It cannot be killed, actually, when it's functioning correctly. It cannot be stopped, in point of fact. Uh, and I'm not a triumphalist, by the way. I'm actually a kind of a pessimistic person. <laughs> but I'm telling you, this is, this is like what if 2,000 years of church history just taught us. The church is really capable of doing this. It's capable of, of, of forming itself in every context where it's placed. Brian, uh, let, let's get back to something you said earlier about, you know, shedding off some of the things that uh, maybe, and maybe this is in our, our pre-episode uh, uh, conversation, but um, somebody asked a question about decolonizing um, not just our theology, but our ecclesiology. So can you talk about how maybe um, the microchurch is, in a sense, you know, a visible expression of trying to decolonize, you know, uh, the, at least the North American church, and then talk about the feature of leadership development. Somebody asked a question about seminaries, Bible colleges. I mean, uh, these aren't their words, these are mine, but are we, are, we, are we developing professional clergy to feed the colonial system? What are the alternative pathways? Wow. Um, yeah. Um, how do I say this? Okay, okay so I, I don't mean to sound sort of superior or sanctimonious, but we, we have to let Jesus lead his church. Um, so the problem, it's not just the failure of white theology or colonized theology. It's actually a failure of any human tradition. I was just reading Mark 6 this morning. And Jesus is saying, you, your problem is that you have let go of the word of God, let go of the commands of God, I think he says, and you've held on to human traditions. That's what he says. Man, is that, is that not still a problem? <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, you've, you've let go of the word, the commands of God, the word of God, <clears throat> and you've held on to human traditions. So whatever it is, you know, whatever we've inherited isn't bad necessarily, but it becomes a problem when it replaces the voice of God in our lives, you know. And I think in another place, Jesus, I, just, just ringing in my head, <clears throat> where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, they're trying to trap him. And he says, you're in error because you do not know the scriptures and you do not know the power of God. So our error, whatever it is, whether it's a colonized theology, that's, that's just one problem. There's lots of other kinds of heterodoxy, right? There's lots of other kinds of heresy, which is possible. That's just one problem. But our error comes from not knowing the scriptures ourselves and not knowing the power of God in our own lives. So my feeling is, okay, how do we, how do we if you want to call it like empower or support indigenous theology, you just have to let people do the do theology in their context. You know what I mean? You have to let people seek the face of God, pour over the scriptures themselves. We have to give people the tools to do their own theological reflection and to come up with their own theologies within. Now that can sound like a scary thing because you think, oh God, you know, we're, how, how orthodoxy is just going to go out the window. That's only true if you don't believe, and I don't, I don't mean to be offensive, but if you don't actually believe in, something called the Holy Spirit. If you don't actually believe that, that there is such a thing as the Spirit of God, which leads us into all truth. And, and I think we struggle with that 
to be frank. I think we trust our systems more, our pedagogy more than we really trust the Holy Spirit. I think if you just lead people to the Bible and the, they'll just get it wrong and they will, they will get it wrong, but not more than when you teach it to them, <laughs> because not only are they going to get it wrong when you teach it to them, but they're also, you're also going to compound your own errors. So there's certain things we were wrong about, right? There, there is a failure of white theology, which has been passed on. And unfortunately we pass it on. Now, I'm not saying it's not important to like teach or train or get the Academy. I'm, I'm a big believer in the Academy. I still teach in the Academy, but it's like, let people do their own theology. So um, the, the deep theology is something you do. It's something that you live. And do we know the scriptures and the power of God? And again, we'll go back to the work of mission to me, right at the center of the best possible theology is mission. If you're doing it, if you're living in that, that precipice of this is really hard. I don't know what to do. God help me. Desperation, seeking the scriptures, having to teach people, having to disciple people, having to answer the question of context. You're going to probably become a better theologian, I think, in the long run. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. I mean, Daniel will know this better than me, but um, wasn't it Roland Allen that said, uh, this is a, it, it was either him or um, Leslie Newbigin who said, Hey, you know, this is a missionary book. I mean, this, the New Testament is written by missionaries. So if you're not on mission, there's a good chunk of the scripture. It just doesn't open up in the same way to you when you're on mission and you're reading the Bible. And that's kind of that power of God, like you're saying, and the word, those two come, come alive in a, in a new way. And I think we forget that, that this was not a institutional religion handbook the new yeah. Testament. It was never meant to be that it was a book all about the kingdom of God on mission. Yeah. And uh, so anyways, I know I'm supposed to ask questions, Brian, rather than pontificate, but um, you know, if Batman can say bats frighten him, um, conversations like this excite me. So uh, that is the secret to my Batman. But um, you know, here's the thing. I, I listen to this and um, one of, one of the people is uh, one day me talk pretty one of our uh, watchers uh, listen. I don't know what I'm saying, but here's the question. Dang it. It's, Hey, could you talk more about money is going by vocational best is raising money as a missionary an option. What are some practical options you've seen for starting micro church networks and paying your family's bills? <laughs> well, yeah, I think, I think to do micro churches, I mean, so in the underground, maybe about 65% of our micro churches, don't need funding. They don't need full-time salaries. Um, even if they grow, they may only need some kind of part-time or some small grants or something like that. So to actually do meaningful ministry and to plant churches, you don't actually need that. But to run networks that serve hierarchies that serve those, we are going to, we are going to continue to need funding and full-time vocational people that do that for a living. I just think the skill sets have changed. You know, like coaching is probably more important than preaching now. Um, empathy is probably more important than vision now. There's a, there's a shift in the skill set, the core skill set. We're still going to need people to do full-time vocational ministry, so we're still going to need money to fund that. I'd say I'd say yes, absolutely. There's there's a simple technology which parachurch people know. Just find some young life person or some crew person or some university person in your city and just say, teach me how to teach me how to do to take donors seriously and to raise some money. And you probably could raise some money. If you're in a 
You know, traditional church, I think the easiest way to liberate your, your, your system from the economic model is to look at your, the people that give, which in most churches you're talking about, it's going to be a small group. It's going to be about 20% of the givers give all the money or most all the money. So you just identify those 10, 12 people and you sit down with them and you actually stop pretending like you don't know that they give all the money and you look them in the eye and you say, listen, this is, this is what I feel God leading us to do. Will you continue to support for the next three years the work of this church as a kingdom enterprise and not as a not as a traditional church Sunday morning thing? If you get those ten people on board, they say we're with you. You can do whatever you want. I mean, you're, you're suddenly now you've got to treat those people seriously. They become a sort of advisory board because they're funding the work now, right? So you got to work with them, talk to them, win them. You know, that's, that's your funding team, you know, but just like that, you could flip the script on the whole approach. If you keep pretending like it's like, I, I close my eyes and I don't know who puts money in the plate. It just comes from God. It comes from, that's, it, I think, I actually think the people who give the right, the biggest checks in your church probably would like to be treated with a little bit of deference or honor or something. Uh, you know, listen to their opinions and get them on board. And if they say no and say, we don't want to do that, then say, then you just have to count the cost of that, decide whether you can move on in that approach or not. And when you start something, I think, I think the best way to start a microchurch movement is to actually embody it. So don't, so be bivocational. Don't, don't try to raise money and become a, a full-time person when you have no network to lead. Just do mission, you know, be a missionary, show people that's got to be in that core beginning DNA that you did it, you know, for at least a couple of years, you did it and you saw fruit. And a lot of people that came out of that early stuff, it has to be you like work somewhere where you can meet people, where you can make money. It's the, the genius of a missionary is you think, okay, I don't know. There's, there's, there's a, there's a Google uh, headquarters here in Dublin, six, 8,000 employees, something like that. If I wanted to, if I was thinking, how do I reach Googlers, right? How do I reach those people? How do I plant a church there? Well, I mean, what's the first thing I would do? I'd get a job there. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm, how else am I going to get in there? The easiest, simplest, smartest, smoothest approach as a missionary is I need to try to get a job there. Even if I'm just the custodian, I need like a, a badge that gets me in the door that I can talk to people, that I can actually be a part of that group, that community. So, that's how we can also think about co-vocational stuff is just where's God called you? Where do you want to see fruit? Where do you have that kind of that zeal, that intrinsic motivation? And if they pay you to be there, that's great. That's amazing. But if you make that shift where you're going into full-on, full-time vocation to serve the network, you just have to have enough critical mass of that going. And then, yes, I think there are people out there that will fund that. I really do. Brian, I know we're running out, uh, out of time, and but I want to uh, ask a question to follow up on that because I think that's really important. If if someone is starting microchurches, maybe they've got one, maybe they've got two, and they're starting to ask the question, how do I build the network? What is the one next staff? Uh, wh who is it that exists outside of the microchurch network, uh, microchurches to support the net network? Help us to think through that strategic uh, decision. I think that's a really great question because it because it cannot be answered by me. 
because it, it can only be answered by those people. So in other words, let's not have the tail wag the dog. The question is, if, if it's really about serving them and you've got five microchurches, then the answer to that question is there in those five microchurches. You ask them, what do you most need? What will help you thrive or flourish? Where are you hitting walls? And if they say, look, we just need a place to meet, then the first thing you need is a facility person or a facility. That's, that's the first thing you need to provide for them. If they say, look, we, need, we, we can't raise money, we, we have no way to like manage finances, we don't have a bank account, whatever, then the first person I hired, the first person I hired in 2007 was a part-time finance person. So the first kind of uh, service that we provided beyond what I could do, which is like coaching or training, was financial services. Because that's what, the, that's what people said they needed. So it's not some master plan to sort of build it out this way. It's just saying, what do you need? What do you need? And to wake up every day. A movement leader is waking up every day thinking, how can I serve these people? What do they need? And listening deeply to them and caring about the struggles that they're having. So if what they need is coaching, then you need to find a person that can do coaching. If what they need is training, if what they need is facilities, if what they need is media, if what they need is, is you know, I don't know, the theological training, uh, if what they need is advocacy, if what they need is a lawyer, I don't know, if it, whatever your five are, like if they, that's a good example. If, if, they're, if, if they're sort of liability exposed, you might think the first money we spend is on insurance for them. You know what I mean? It's just answer the question, what do they need? It's good. It's really good. Well, man, we want to thank you, uh, Daniel and I, and on behalf of Exponential for joining us today for the coolest show on Exponential, hands down. I mean, front lines definitely check out wednesday ralph moore and myron pierce have a show and that is practical multiplication and uh thursday we have candid conversations coming up with uh dr drew hart so check that out but uh if you are looking to get deeper involved in these conversations um particularly on diversity um which has been the theme of our together uh 2019 exponential conference um and now here we are, or sorry, 2020 conference and heading into parts of 2021 because of COVID. Um, it's been a real opportune time for us to kind of double down into diversity topics. Check out our roundtables that are going to be running for the next few months. Those are going to be all over the United States, a hundred different speakers in a hundred different cities. And we want to invite you and encourage you to go deeper into those conversations with us. It's going to be in your local church context. Um, it's not just going to be, you know, like one size fits all. Your local church will determine what talks you're going to have, what speakers you're going to have, and uh, what your community needs to really be focusing on. So head on over to multiplication.org slash roundtables and register today. And again, one more time on behalf of Exponential, thanks for joining us today. It's been Brian Sanders. You can catch up with him at the Underground Network and Daniel Yang at the Sin Institute. And uh, me, I don't know, I'm all over the place. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you soon. This fall, Exponential is hosting roundtable events in cities all across America. These half-day gatherings in smaller settings will allow church leaders to prioritize peer-to-peer -peer conversations and receive practical training on how to prepare their church to lead for racial reconciliation. Exponential roundtables will help you continue to pursue church multiplication in these challenging times. Find a roundtable near you this fall by visiting multiplication.org.